You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, what's up, everyone? Tonight's episode is going to be part one of a two-part episode. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Alex Menke of Frog Daddy. You can check out his website, frogdaddy.net, and we got to discuss quite a few things. Um, first episode, we got to discuss uh, some of the business aspects of frogdaddy.net and some of the things that got Alex into it. And then the second episode, we're going to focus on some conservation issues and some of the topics that might be relevant in terms of marrying the worlds of the hobbyist and the conservationist. So I hope you all enjoy it. And before we get started tonight, I wanted to thank a couple of people, especially the Herpetoculture Network. Um, you guys are really supportive of me, and I want to give you guys a shout out and a good, you know, say a thank you. And I also want to thank the listener in England. Um, I've been checking my podcast stats, and it's really remarkable that I was able to reach an audience so far away as as England. So, if you're out there and you're listening, thanks a lot. And not to not to ignore other people too, but there was also a couple of listeners from Germany. So I really appreciate you guys' support, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Alex, what's going on? Hey, what's going on, man? Oh, How are you? Good, good. I know we had a chance to talk a lot off the air about a variety of things, and um, I think that uh, you know, really want to get back into it again. So tell tell us your story. How did you get into frogs? And tell us about how you came up with the name Frog Daddy because it really stuck out to me when I, um, you know, when I was looking at different companies that I might want to engage for the podcast. Y- your name really caught my eye. Well, I could say that's a quite a loaded question. Um, so what kind of got me into frogs per se? Or even you could even say just, I mean, poison dart frogs, because I basically deal with poison dart frogs almost exclusively right now. Um, But I think that when I was very young, um, I saw uh, something on TV. uh, And I think what I saw was (laughs) the memory's a little fuzzy, but uh, a Tinctorius Azurius, the blue poison dart frog um, on the Discovery Channel. And I was like, oh my gosh, that. The animal is so beautiful, right? So if you've ever seen one before, they are one of the most, in my opinion, the most gorgeous animals on the planet. And I think from a young age, that image just kind of stuck with me over time. And when I hit college, I, you know, before that I had collected, you know, I was outside all the time collecting lizards and anything else I could find in Georgia, building little habitats for them, you know, all the way up until uh, college. And then one day I was sitting in class, probably shouldn't have done this and I'm an educator. So I'm going to, I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking about frogs, which may sound crazy too. No, it doesn't sound Um, crazy at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was sitting in class and I was like, man, that image popped back up in my head for some reason. I was like, man, I wonder if you can own these. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just look. So I was like, poison dart frogs into Google. And lo and behold, of course, Josh's frogs came up. And I was like, oh, my God, you can actually buy them. And, you know, before you you talk to anybody that doesn't know about poison dart frogs, and they're like, holy crap, you can keep those? Are they poisonous? And, you know, so it's just it's that whole thing. And to common knowledge, we don't really know about them. Uh, A lot of people still don't know you can keep them in captivity. So I ended up keeping a few. You know, I got my first... Uh, in 2011, um, I got my first frogs, which were Aratus, uh, Costa Rican green and blacks. And from then on, 
um, I mean, I just started turning my dorm room into a jungle, which you could probably imagine uh, needed some special treatment from the RAs uh, to not get in trouble, you know, keeping, you know, one, two, three, four, 12 Darfrog tanks in, in, in college. So it was, it was quite crazy. So fast forward to grad school, had about 13 enclosures um, all the way up into Michigan. Um, I started diversifying things there, started keeping Ranatamea um, and some others in 2015. And then when I came to North Carolina again to teach this time, uh, I got a job being a professor at the school that I graduated from. Um, I just started keeping them um, in 17, 18, 19, 20 tanks. And then all of a sudden I was like, man, I really love doing this. Like I really enjoy breeding, keeping you know, enjoying this hobby. And I was like, man, I don't really want to do this, but I was thinking about starting a business. So there and behold, I have you know, 72 enclosures that first year from 20. Um, and then from one, from 72, that next year, I got 133. And then from then on, I got about 300 plus this year. Um, so we're a pretty big operation now. You, Big you, is kind you, of a strange word, but you put my frog room to shame. <laughs> I always brag well, to people that I have like a moderately sized collection, and then um, you know, I've had conversations with other people. I, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Travis from TCS, and I'm having a conversation with you now, and I realize that my collection is like peanuts. It's nothing, <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> now, you know, we're we're kind of the in the obsessed phase. So now, yeah. I, I mean, was there a point where you said? Um, you know, for the amount of work that I'm doing to maintain this collection, I, I might as well get paid for it. I mean, by that, I mean, like, I, you know, I go downstairs in my room and I spend about an hour a day just between, you know, pruning plants and making sure everything has water, you know, making fruit fly cultures, etc. I'm sure you spend a lot more time. In fact, I know you did because when we were on the phone, you, you were, you know, we were kind of discussing your routine. But I mean, for me, a lot of times when I get involved in the amount of work that is necessary to maintain, you know, a, obviously, you know, a small collection by your standards, but um, at some point it kind of does become work. I mean, do you think that that sort of affected your decision to get into the dart frog business? Meaning, you know, like I said, if I'm going to do all this and I'm going to, you know, be cleaning cages and making cultures, I might as well make it into a career. So... I think uh, that's a tough question too. I think that where it really boiled down to is dark frogs are pretty easy to breed. Um, I mean, overall, like your, your most basic ones are pretty straightforward. Uh, if you get the habitat right, then, you know, and you have a pair or a trio or whatever, it may be a group, you pretty much get eggs. Um, and then you end up getting a lot of froglets and tadpoles and such. And then you're sitting there and you're like, mm, what do I do with these? Well, the only thing you can do is either cull them, which is kind of dark, um, which some people do that are really not interested in selling them or you sell them or you give them away or whatever, but there's some kind of transaction there. And when you start to have 20, 30, 40 types of dark frogs and you're getting all these, I mean, you just start it starts becoming a business. It's kind of like a creep. You don't really realize you have a business until you do. And then you're like, wow, I'm making thousands of dollars off these. And then eventually you're like, okay, what do I do here? You do get to that crossroads. And I did, I did arrive at that crossroad. 
Um, and it's not because I wanted money. It's not because I, you know, had any, any of that in the plans, but it just got to that point. I had like 70 enclosures and I'm like, I, I really don't have time. I'm taking care of these things more time than I'm spending on all my lesson plans. So what am I really doing? So I did have to make a judgment call there. And it was a very hard judgment call because uh, selling and breeding exotic animals is not necessarily a steady paycheck, nor is it, uh, it, it's not predictable income. Uh, And I had a full-time job at that point and I had to leave it because I couldn't sustain my collection without staying up till two in the morning every night, you know, trying to get everything ready. Like you said, fruit fly cultures. I mean, at that point I had been making, you know, 60, 70 a week, nothing crazy or, or less even, but it still took a couple hours. So, yeah, I think hopefully I answered the question, but. No, absolutely. It, I mean, like yeah. me, I, I, you know, I have kind of a limit where there's a, just a certain number of animals that I feel comfortable sustaining. And then if my collection exceeds that, which it, it had in the past, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was younger, I kind of got the collector bug where you yeah. want to have. <laughs> that is severe with dart frogs. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And this was actually, you know, really prior to dart frogs. This was, you know, other species of herps. And, um, you know, I found that I reached kind of a certain point, And then after I exceed that point, it becomes, then it becomes work and it ceases to become fun and enjoyable so i kind of keep my collection scaled back to about generally the the number of individual animals including animals that are not frogs excluding my dogs which are are a whole other story but it hovers for me it hovers around 30 so anything above that is just for me for my purposes then it just kind of becomes like all right well my whole existence now is to take care of everything and it just it throws the balance off, but yeah, you, you definitely, Correct. um, yeah, you, I mean, that's, that's a lot, that's a large collection. So you definitely, you know, you definitely made your point with that. Um, just to back up though, do you want to tell us how you came up with the name for the company? Um, so the name of my company is a little, it's a little catchy. It's a little cringy. Um, I kind of wanted to make it like that. I don't think it's um, cringy at all. Actually. I think it's great. I think that it really stands out. It, do, it definitely stands out, and that's one of the things, I mean, when you're thinking about um, from a marketing perspective, um, I wanted to make it stand out. Um, but before that, the whole reason I named it what it is uh, was because my dad always said, who's your daddy? And he, he had always been saying that through my whole life. Um, and my dad's a very special person in my life. He's worked very hard uh, in the manufacturing industry for about 40 years now. Um, pretty much paycheck to paycheck when we were when we were young kids, uh, but we never knew that. Um, and my dad made sure of that. I thought I had a f- fantastic childhood. Um, I pretty much got. I didn't get everything I wanted, of course, but I had enough to where it was like, wow, you know, I I feel like I'm middle class, you know, or whatever. But it it turns out it wasn't that way. My dad would just pick up two, three shifts at at a time. And as a child, I thought, why is my dad not present? Like, where is my dad all this time? And I think it took me till I was in, in college, a lot of revelations in college, I guess, um, that I realized that he was always doing those double and triple shifts to sustain our family. So in reality, my dad is kind of my childhood hero. It's kind of cliche, but it's, it's a true statement. Um, 
And I wanted to um, basically start this business because my dad never had the time to start his. Um, he has always wanted to own a restaurant. And he, you know how you get stuck in corporate jobs. Absolutely. absolutely. It, just, it, it just never happened. And my dad's kind of at the point where it's like he's in a really good place now. And, he, you know, he's enjoying his life in Montana and being surrounded by mountains and <laughs> what he would call God's country. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, he's doing great now. But like the fact is he never got to do that. And so I wanted him to, you know, vicariously live through my business. And, you know, and that's kind of the whole reason I named it Frog Daddy was kind of after that tagline. So, yeah, I, I don't. It was I, a tribute to my dad. I think it's a great tribute. I mean, did, is, is is your dad into frogs at all, or is it just kind of like, you know, like my <laughs> yeah. my daughter's into small mammals, so we we relate somewhat like on a care thing. But you know, my older relatives they look at me like I'm kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of in the middle of that. My dad does not; he's not into frogs per se, but he really likes being he likes being present in my business. Um, I'm at the point now in my business where there are tasks that I have to delegate and my dad, my mom sometimes help me with certain tasks, um, whether it be so basic as email presence or if it's, uh, you know, if it's updating the budget or whatever, whatever they can do to help they do, um, especially my dad. So he does a lot of the coordination, things like that. So he gets very excited because I'm doing something he's always wanted to do. So it's not really the it's not really the frogs. It's just the whole idea of it, running a business. He likes that. I mean, he's a CEO now. So he runs his business too. So it's kind it's kind of cute like that. If if you want to put it like that, we both kind of run businesses. I'm just like super super small. He's like dealing in millions of dollar transactions, so I'm just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's, it's, it's just kind yeah. of funny. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. You know, it's, I mean, it's amazing. Like as, as we get older, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, I found that like, you know, the more I age, the more you kind of look at the people like your, you know, your, your parents. And in my case, my, my in-laws, I have a very, very good relationship with my in-laws, especially my father, who uh, he passed away from cancer a few years ago. And after he passed away, I actually got back into the hobby as kind of a, a way of coping with it because I was very, very involved with him in his life. And then the older I got, the, you know, the more I realized that, you know, you're, the, the way you perceive someone when you're a kid, it changes so much as you get older and you realize that, you know, they're, they're a human being the same as you and they didn't always know everything that they were doing and they, they, they didn't always plan for every contingency. And, you know, when you're a kid, you think that you look, you're like, oh, they're gods, you know what I mean? But, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I feel like you get to know people like that the older you get, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like as you get to be an adult, you kind of get to know the people that you love and respect kind of more as your peer, you know? But, Correct. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't wander too off topic, but no, it's pretty cool. That's, that's, I think that's a great tribute. Now, when you were growing up, I mean, I know that you, you know, you've gotten involved with dart frogs in school and obviously the, you know, the image of the Azurius was really like a driving factor, but I mean, you grew up in Georgia, but now you live in North Carolina, right? I mean, are there any other native Correct. species that interest you at all? Um, yeah. See, I saw that question. I was like, man, I'm really, it's really hard to pick because I was kind of just into 
I was like every other kid, I felt like, uh, that was an outside kind of hurt person. I was just catching them, to be honest, snakes, uh, lizards, uh, frogs. So, I, I mean, the Cope's gray tree frog and the gray tree frog, I guess, are the ones I kept the most just because I loved frogs. And it was a native tree frog that I could get pretty easily. Um, so that was pretty cool. Our house back to woods. So I'd go back there all the time. Uh, used to with my brother and we'd catch stuff and, you know, build habitats for them, catch bugs outside for them. So I've always been doing it, but there's no particular species that I had an affinity to necessarily. I liked all of them. Um, and that's kind of the, the theme with me. It's all of it. Uh, if I'm going to collect something, I'm going to collect all of it. <laughs> so, I, I know. It's the collective yeah, bug. Yeah, so, yeah, bug things, isopods. I mean, I was just like, oh, I need all of it. And it's yeah. kind of scary. Yeah. It branches I, into everything, plants, all of it. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I mean, we, it's, we all kind of get that collective bug in us at, at, at some point. I mean, the, the, the older I've gotten, the less of that kind of collective bug I've got. But when I was, you know, when I was younger, when I was in my twenties, uh-huh. I was like, I want this, I want this, I want this, yep. I want this, I want to see this in the wild. And um, unfortunately, you know, where where I live, the biomass and the biodiversity in terms of amphibian population has decreased. I mean, it's it's decreased a lot in the past. You know, probably going back sixty years. But when I was younger, we'd find. American toad tadpoles by the thousand, and we we have this here on Long Island. We have something called a sump, and it's basically like a it's like a drainage ditch that goes to like yeah. a big open yep. area where the rainwater will go over. But we would find American toad tadpoles there, you know, thousands and thousands of them in these vernal pools. And right. then time went by. This was going back about twenty <laughs> thirty years ago, and then as time went by, we saw less and less and less, and now I barely see them at all. So. I often envy people who had access to like large open wooded areas when they were kids because this, the, the, everything was so abundant. Right. You know, you, you, yeah, it wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when you'd run into it. But Yeah, um, correct. I mean, in terms of dog frogs, though, is there like, a, let's just say that you can only pick one species. Is there is there a specific species that really, really means a lot to you? <laughs> um, so it, I know it's, it's another trick question. Again, yeah, I know. It's, it's <laughs> tough. Um, yes, though, I would say that they're annoying frogs to own and I don't, you know, I, I'd say I would never recommend them for beginners, but I do like Ranitomea fantastica. Those are probably the, it's probably the species I like the most. Um, I think I have, I think I have all the locales of them still, um, white banded, reticulated, canarachi, lowlands so i just love fantastica i think the color their coloration is beautiful they're a little shy but when you see them you know it's always that oh wow i see them today kind of thing because uh, i think we, you know everybody likes tanks everybody likes philobates and stuff that's you know dendrobates they're always up in the front of the tank and that's great especially for beginners that's fantastic that's a big you know not just selling point but that's just a it's an interest point. It's, uh, it's reassuring like... too, I think, to know that you're. Oh, of course, it's alive. <laughs> I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> I haven't seen it in two weeks. Yeah, the beginners don't want you don't want to deal with that. But for me, um, a so-called experienced keeper, um, I think I do like them the most. I just, 
I think they're gorgeous and they're a little bit fragile and that fragility is kind of a, it's not good for business. I mean, I've unfortunately lost a few along the way during moves and transitional times, uh, times where I've been really strict on feeders. I think I lost a Fantastica once. Um, it, they're, they're, but they're that whole personification of them is awesome to me. So I would have to choose Fantastica if I had to choose one species that I enjoy. Now, would you consider them like a top seller or they're just sort of more coveted by people who are really, really experienced? Like what, what would your top seller be like as a whole? So that's another tough one. It just uh, it really does depend on what people are looking for. And it seems to come in waves. Um, with the dart frog hobby certain things become super popular then they oversaturate and then the price goes down people stop keeping them then they suddenly you know five ten years later they become rare again and we've seen it happen time and time again um, right now one that's really hot is variabilis southern um, they're just everybody wants them i get an email once a week hey when are you having these hey do you have any tadpoles of these like or do you guys have anything available at all? You know, just they're really wanting Variabilis Southern. Um, some of the other ones are Terribilis Mint. Mint Terribilis are one of the most popular frogs. They have always been popular. Um, Familio are starting to come in a little bit more popular nowadays. Um, but it's hard to say what the top seller is. It depends on who, what group of people you're selling them to, experienced keepers or new keepers. So, I mean, do you find that you sell more to new keepers or more to intermediate or experienced? We sell more to intermediate to experienced. Um, and that I think we talked off podcast about that a little bit. Um, a lot of my customer base, they're not the newer people. Um, I do have quite a few, but it's just a lot of more experienced keepers come to us as well because um, we have a lot of the rare Pamilio locales right now. And we have, you know, like I said, we have higher end Ranitamea. Uh, so that's kind of what intermediate keepers like to keep because they started with Dender Beatties and the Tanks and the Lukes, and now they're ready for something different. And that's kind of where I come in as a niche. You know, Josh's Frogs kind of covers the beginner. Um, but they don't really sell Pamilio. They don't sell high-end Ranitamea. Uh, so that's kind of where we come. And then the very experienced keepers use like the large obligates. We don't really keep many large obligates. Uh, that's not really our focus right now. Um, those are the frogs that can fetch, you know, anywhere between 500 bucks and 1500 bucks a frog. And, you know, to be honest with you, I like them, but they're not my love. Um, and I do realize the collector creep because um, I'm, I'm creeping into my 30s and I'm starting to realize like eh, keeping everything is not always the best idea. Um, so we have scaled down a little bit um, and then scaled the business in different areas. Now, do you think that um, how do I phrase this? I mean, do you think that it takes more discipline to keep dart frogs than other species, say, you know, um, trying to think of an example. I'm, I'm going to exclude reptiles altogether, but uh, let's just say compared to, like, dumpy tree frogs, which are really, really popular. I mean, do you think that the average person who, say, starts off with, like, a dumpy or uh, an American green tree frog, 
do you think that there's like a, a learning curve there or do you think that you really have to kind of, you know, start out with other other species that might be a little bit more forgiving and then get into dog frogs? Or do you think that you can start off with um, a more, um, I don't want to say an easier, but a, a more tolerant species like, um, like tanks and then proceed there? So I think that, I think there's this, I don't want to say broad misconception, but there is a general misconception about how difficult dart frogs are. Um, I already said in the beginning of the podcast how easily they breed, and we didn't really go into that, but dart frogs are pretty easy to keep uh, if you think about bare bones. If you get the enclosure right and you get your group dynamic right, and you can do this before you even buy them, if you get those two things correct before you get them, they are the easiest animal on the planet to own. I am thoroughly convinced. They're almost as easy as isopods, which are invertebrates. Um, and they they literally will just live in a bin their whole lives. So if you have the right habitat for them, they are super forgiving. Um, the only thing that, the things that I see that people make the mistake on is the enclosure. You know, whether it's, it's too much ventilation, like the screen, a completely screen top. I'm super against 100% screen tops for dart frogs. I think that's the roll of the dice. If your mister stops working, if you get lazy, if anything happens, I mean, that's instant death. Um, but I think, I mean, if you get the enclosure right, like I've repeated three times, they're pretty straightforward. I think tree frogs are a lot harder. They're a lot more fragile uh, in my experience. And again, like I said at the beginning, I have very limited experience with other animals. I've only done dart frogs with, you know, with to the experience that I have. I haven't bred tree frogs for 10 years. Um, I've only started, I just started doing that. Um, so in my experience, yeah, I mean, dumpies, I have, I have some white tree frogs. They're, they're pretty easy. They're pretty straightforward. Um, but yeah, so are dart frogs. I mean, the, the other thing is the food. People get really squeamish about culturing fruit flies when in reality fruit flies are super simple to culture and not to mention cheap i mean you can buy one tub of fruit flies or one culture and you can end up making like i mean i i know some people that started a year or two ago with our cultures they've never bought cultures again they bought our culturing kit and they've sustained that line of flies for two years so it's just, I don't know, to me, as long as the information is there and you have a mentor or a teacher to help you through dart frogs, which is what we try our best to do with our customers, you should have no problems. That's interesting. You know, it's, I'll have conversations with people and they'll say, oh, oh, you have dart frogs. That must be incredibly difficult. And I'll kind yeah. of, you know, <laughs> chuckle and say, yeah, or, you know, it's, 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 it's so hard, you know, it's just, uh, no, no, nobody can handle this. There's only a select few of us. And in reality, it's, it's not, I mean, I kind of feel like if you, uh, you know, if you, if you keep something that requ obviously requires some kind of attention, like if you keep, you know, if you keep tropical fish, I kind of like that analogy because yes. it's a look, but don't touch situation you have to maintain that environment because it's, you know, not something that you're going to be able to duplicate with your, you know, your ambient conditions in your house. I mean, with low humidity and whatnot, unless you live in an area we've got, 
you know, higher humidity and temperatures in the mid-70s regularly. But, like, my freakouts is really, like you said, it's really enclosure issues and and feeders. And before we had COVID affect New York, I'd gone to an expo. I think it was, it had to have been probably in, like, January or maybe even before that. might have even been December or November of last year. I bought a couple of cultures because I I sort of like to introduce some sort of, you know, some new blood, so to speak, into my cultures. And fortunately, I've been culturing from that original culture that I purchased almost a year ago to this day. So I was kind of freaked out. I was like, oh, man, I was like, if I lose, you know, these couple of cultures, I could kind of be, you know, in in a bad spot for a while. But it's once you get it right, it's it's easy. You know, it's just, yeah, if someone if, if, if you can't get them, like if you have. I mean, obviously, you have hundreds, I'm going to assume hundreds and hundreds of cultures going. But, you know, if I have 10 or 12 cultures going and it's really, really dry for like a couple of days, I might not have the production that I would normally get. And then I kind of have to wait until the next cycle to boom. You know, you have to kind of you have to kind of change the, the the water to culture ratio. You know, I mean, I, I've started using vinegar within the past year and a half and I've had better results with a vinegar mix, you know, not getting mold, but... You know, last year, my cultures were kind of getting, you know, they were getting eaten alive by mold. And this year, not so much. But it, it does take a lot of the anxiety away when you feel like you have that greater sense of control. Correct. Yeah, I think the feeder thing is the biggest thing. Um, and people do run into that a lot. So whenever we preference? get a new person. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't interrupt you. Do you have like a preference for melanogaster or, or Heidi Eye? <laughs> yes. I ask everyone I think this Heidi question. Heidi Eye are demons. Uh, I hate them. I hate all fruit flies besides Apterus melanogaster. And I almost refuse to keep them in my facility. Um, Bill, William Newell, who's pretty much my partner in crime uh, with this, he, he, he likes Heidi Eye. And a lot of people do. But man, with Heidi Eye, you get increased mites you've got the potential for flyers and of course that happens and here we are dealing with the mite issue right now and pretty sure that's because of the high di that never used them i like the short life cycle of melanogaster it's predictable really easy to get the cultures right and yeah it takes three of them to feed for one high di but at the same time they reproduce a lot faster so your mite life cycle is not going to be as prevalent if you are on top of your game with the, the culturing of your melanos. And since they're apterists, they're not going to be flying in any situation, which is a very good thing um, because a lot of people deal with flyers a lot or they'll get flightless melanogaster. And then they're like, oh, no, my house is infested with thousands of flies. Like you never want that. You want one thing that'll get people out of dart frogs? It's flies. So I make it easy on myself and our customers. And I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I don't have all these Turkish gliders and shit like that. But trust me, they're little demons. If anything happens with them, if they regain their ability to fly or if there's mite outbreaks or stuff like that, 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 like you said, you run out of feeders because of mites. That's a huge problem. So I try and avoid all that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've kind of phased the melanogaster out. Really, 
I mean, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the mite situation because I did notice a lot less of a mite issue. Well, the other thing was I had cultures that had kind of a mite problem that may well, may very well have been from the fact that I kept Melanogaster and Hydei. Mm-hmm. Once I got rid of the Hydei, though, I didn't have as much of a mite problem, but I did also start off with fresh cultures from that expo. And I kind of said, kind of hinted at that I got one culture. I actually didn't get one. I got like five, but... <laughs> they were they were like producing cultures that were booming and there was not a single mite in them. So I was like, all right, let me just sort of start fresh here. But um, I mean, I think that you're right that that's one of the things that will kind of deter people is the whole fly issue. And my basement is admittedly not um, not free from rogue flies. It's yep. one of those situations. Exactly. Yeah, I, I have... Um, a lot of house spiders down there too. So I kind oh, yeah. of made a deal with the house spiders and I, I know this is probably <laughs> going to sound ridiculous and people laugh at me. I really don't care, but I kind of made a deal with the spiders. I said, look, I won't kill you guys. If you, I mean, I don't like to, I keep tarantulas, so I don't like to kill spiders anyway, but I basically said, look, I'm not going to bother you guys. Just eat the flies and don't spin a web over the toilet. And they've been pretty good with it. So every so <laughs> often I have to kind of go down there and kind of renege on that bargain and clean up. But um, yeah, it is unpleasant when you do have, you know, rogue flies kind of flying around. I mean, what, is there a method that you use to kind of control that outside of obviously the, you know, the, the melon gas that you've selected for your cultures anyway? I mean, I guess keeping the temperature down, if you do have flightless, um, I think in the high eighties to low nineties is where that protein, uh, protein folding starts to where they regain their ability to fly. Um, so keeping temperatures a little bit lower would be good. Um, but like I said, I don't even mess with it. Uh, I use fabric waffle lids too. Um, shout out to TSK. I use those. I use those as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I ordered a ton of those. Um, but basically that kind of helps the transmission of rogue flyers or wild type fruit flies from breeding with the flies in the cup. Um, I think the lids that kind of just have the perforated small holes that are terrible, in my opinion, um, they kind of allow some more uh, rogue flies to enter or breed with your flies. So, I mean, the type of lid definitely matters, in my opinion. Um, But other than that, I just buy Aptorous fruit flies. (laughs) I don't mess around. Uh, So... I mean, they're the smallest, slowest flies ever, (laughs) but, you know, it it does the job. They have no wings. Uh, There's not, you know, it's no hassle, low, low mite infestation. So it's, it's a bit, it's, there's, there's benefits to both, I think. Now, I mean, do you ever supplement with like other feeders? Like I know bean beetles have kind of become popular. I tried them out once. I Their life cycle is a little <laughs> bit long for me to be reliable, and uh, I found that the frogs really didn't go for them. But, I mean, are there any other species? I mean, do you, do you incorporate isopods? Or, I mean, what what else do you incorporate as, an, as additional feeders? So the only feeders that I would say are another staple would be springtails. Um, we have dwarf isopods in every enclosure. So there's a couple types of dwarf isopods. I mean, there's there's actually a lot, but let's just keep it simple and call it dwarf white and dwarf purple. Um, those are the most common. Um, 
those are seeded in every enclosure. You know, they eat leaf litter, feces, decaying organic matter. They reproduce parthenogenically. So it's super easy to keep a good population within the enclosure and providing a little bit of that supplementary food source slash foraging for the frogs. But the springtails are definitely something that we use a lot of because we breed a lot of Ranitomea. And if you imagine, these are the thumbnail dart frogs um, for listeners that may not be so in tune with the word Ranitomea. So I apologize, but they are very small. Um, hence why they're called thumbnail dart frogs. Now you can imagine that the adults are about the size of your thumbnail. So what do you think the babies are like? They're extremely tiny. So what you end up doing is you start dusting springtails, things like that. Uh, so we keep a ton of springtail cultures on hand. Uh, and that's mainly to feed the babies, baby pamilio, baby thumbnails. Um, but other than that, it's just straight fruit flies. So I'm going to let you know right now, I'm not going to sift through bean beetles or wax worms or anything like that because I'm already on a time crunch. And that's the whole, that's the whole point of fruit flies. It's the best feeder in the world, in my opinion. I mean, it's so fast. Tapping out a producing culture, you've already got a couple hundred flies there. I mean, maybe maybe a little less. I might be extrapolating those numbers, but you know, we have tons of cultures. So I mean, you have you have potential for thousands of flies. And I mean, sifting through the larval form of like beetles and wax and worms and stuff like that, and anything like that, even pinhead crickets have their drawbacks would take so much more effort and time um it, and it really does come down to that it comes down to efficiency because uh, frog daddy is a small company okay it's me bill you know sometimes trey sometimes my girlfriend um and and it's small it's mainly me doing all this work so i mean i've got to make sure that i do it right but i also have to make sure i do it quick now you're, so. you're also really really um, a big proponent of good customer service. I mean, what's, you know, obviously having a smaller business, I mean, you know, we're, we're not talking about like, you know, like a big box store or something like that. But I mean, as a small business, I mean, what, what kind of relationship, like, do you deal with a lot of repeat customers or do you kind of reach, you know, reach out to newer people and then they kind of build a relationship with you from there on in? Um, we have both. We have a lot of loyal customers, and that's actually going to increase. Uh, in our part two, we'll talk about that, um, and I'll diverge a or divulge rather a little bit of what we're going to do for our loyal customers uh, to foster more loyalty. We like loyal customers for the obvious reasons, just like every other business. Um, but I think it goes a little further with that, and thank God I'm not that big, and I don't really want to be that big to where I'm not doing those things and those things being defined as good customer service, personal customer service, where you're engaging with these people, you're building friendships outside of the company with these people. I think that's a really important thing that some of the other companies do not do. And personally, I think that's a mistake. Um, and I won't go into that, but I really like the customer service aspect. Some customers are downright horrifying to deal with, but 99% of the people that I deal with are absolutely awesome. And there are new people and veterans alike to, to our company. Um, 
I mean, I've dealt with there, there is, there are some customers that have been shopping with us loyally since day one. And that's because you take three hours with them. You take time to explain, you know, how to set up dart frogs, how to get involved, how to, you know, culture isopods, how to do springtails, how to do fruit flies. And it goes on and on and on to building their first tank for them. I mean, there's a whole slew of things you can choose to do as a business owner that I think a lot of people just don't have the patience or time for. But if you haven't realized, I mean, I will talk your head off. I'll talk <laughs> anybody's head off. And I'm a, and I'm a teacher at heart. Um, so even though I only uh, was a professor for three years, I still maintain that love for teaching and I bring it into my business. Um, so I'll, I'll spend time with a customer, even if they don't buy stuff from me, I still like giving them information. And it's very sad to me because I can't always do that now. I'm so busy now that it's hard for me to tailor that kind of relationship to everybody. So there is kind of a creeping factor that I'm starting to deal with as I'm growing to where it's, it's very difficult, you know, so that there may be a time and a place to where I don't cap out growth of the company per se, but I just need to learn to delegate tasks that are not meant for customer service to other people like sorting leaf litter. I still do that, by the way, if anybody is tuning in to <laughs> no, there's, there's things no, about the leaf litter, I'm still sorting it. <laughs> there, there, there's no shame in that by any means, believe me. I mean, leaf litter is, leaf litter is an important thing. I mean, just you know, on a personal level, from my perspective, I've, I've dealt with larger establishments, and I find that a, a big deterrent is honestly is poor customer service. And by poor customer service, I don't necessarily mean you know, someone is, is, is rude or someone, you know, rips you off. I mean, that's, that's, that's a whole class in and of itself. What really bothers me is people who don't take the time to actually discuss what's going to be involved in, in your purchase. Or if you have an issue, if you have a question, you call the establishment and they don't have someone who can answer those questions. Like I, Correct. I'm not going to get, you know, into it too much, but I, you know, I did have, um, an issue with a product that I purchased from a uh, larger establishment, and um, I know you and I talked about this off air, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to make a big thing about it. But um, I, I did reach out to their customer service department, and the person I got uh, wasn't aware that they even carried that product, nor were they aware of what the product involved. So I. I said, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, this person obviously doesn't quite, you know, understand. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be a jerk, you know. I'm, I'm not going to be a, a, you know, a, a man, Karen. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I waited. I was supposed to get a call back the next day. That didn't happen. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll reach out through email. And they got back to me, and they basically apologized. But that was the end of it. So I said, you know what? Just on principle, it wasn't a large purchase. It was really like amounted to maybe like 20 bucks but you know i reached out again and i just politely said look i you know i know you guys are a business but i really don't see that as being a solution here you know i did you know lay out a few dollars for you know for a product that ended up not being you know what it was supposed to be you know and my my rationale was like look i'm, I'm not the kind of guy who goes hungry for money back or coupons like you know you own a business i i totally understand that and i respect that but 
it would have been nice to have been offered, you know, hey, by the way, you know, here's, you know, even if it was just like, hey, here's a $5 gift card or something, or like, you know, take 10% off your next purchase, which, you know, yep. 10% which is Which they like, should have done. Yeah, 10% I is I mean, nothing. that's, yep. And that's what we do for a lot of our customers. I mean, if, if I mess up and I'm personally involved, then it's very easy for me to rectify it. Um, there, there had been a situation a week ago where we, we screwed up an order. And I mean, that, per, you know, we contact that person. We say, hey, how, how can we make this better? I apologize, you know, personally. And we move on. And most of the time, those people actually become loyal customers. That's the funny thing. It's, it's when you have that personal engagement, when you say, hey, take 20% off your next order. I mean, screw 10%. I don't even care. I just want the person to be happy and for us to move forward. And that's not with everybody, but it's, it's, you know, if we make a big mistake, they're going to get their money back. So, I mean, one guy got his money back and then I shipped him the product again for free. And I'm not promising that. So don't go, don't <laughs> no go freebies. doing that on orders, people. Um, but Don't want to get any ideas. No freebies. <laughs> it happened. I mean, I, I, it was a, it was a person in the dark frog hobby that purchased a plant and I double sold that plant. So it went to someone else and I didn't realize it. And he's like, Hey, where's the tracking? And I'm like, oh, okay. I, you know, I'll check my orders and I couldn't find his order anywhere. And I was like, I don't know what happened. I've never done this before. So, you know what? I went to my, to my stash. I had, I had another one ready to go. It was beautiful. And I said, Hey, I'm going to refund your money and I'm going to ship you this one for free. And you know, he, he was overjoyed. I mean, because he basically got it for free. Um, it's not a tactic I like using, but like, that's what I mean. I want to go above and beyond for people. I like doing that. I am a giver. Um, my family raised me that way. And that's what I like to do. I like making people happy. That's, that's the reason I turned this into a business was because I can show these animals to people and give these plants to people. And it really, it, it's nice to make money. Sure. But it's also really fun for other people to engage in. I loved this hobby, and I still do. It's just now it's more work. Like you said before, it's it's hard. I don't just sit and stare at my tanks anymore. Um, I and thought that, I was the only one that did that. I thought the other. Yeah. I just no, I'll just no, sit and I'll just stare the at point. them. <laughs> that's the fun part, and that's that's what I love. I love getting people into the hobby, and they're like, "Man, I really enjoy this." Or, "Oh, my kid, my kid loves these frogs," and I'm just like, you know, that's the whole. That brings me back to when I could look at a TV screen and see it. Well, these kids get to see it in real life. I mean, that that to me is amazing because I couldn't do that for so long. And it's such a little thing like to you or to someone else to like, oh, you know, it's just Missourius. It's not a big deal. But to me, that image stuck with me for so long. And you can, you know, you can take kids to zoos and things like that. But to have it in your own home, to be able to do that, I think is really cool. So I just love the whole hobby as a whole, you know, as a whole. So now, I mean, you customer also, service is a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, it absolutely is. You know, and I think that, you know, when you develop a relationship with someone really in any situation, you're going to find that, you know, a, a lot of people kind of come off like under the impression that they're going to automatically have an adversarial relationship with a vendor, meaning I know I'm going to get Correct. ripped off. So I'm kind of already a aggravated, but then when that person comes through and said, look, I, I understand that you had a negative experience, but that's not what I wanted you to have. And let's 
move forward amicably. I think that that's what really makes people, you know, want to stay involved in the hobby as well because you're going to want people who are going to be encouraging to you. You know, you're going to want to deal with Correct. a vendor who's going to, number one, obviously want you to develop an appreciation for other living things, but also be able to, you know, not be kind of intimidated. You know, you're not being sold a, you know, a disposable item here. You're being, you're being sold yeah. a living thing that's going to require care and attention. And it's encouraging if you have someone who's going to sort of mentor you in, in, you know, even if it's only for, you know, a few minutes or a few hours on the phone, but that person's going to, sort of be the gatekeeper for you. And I think that by being that gatekeeper and, you know, opening up those possibilities to people in terms of, you know, experience and, you know, things that they were otherwise unaware of, that develops a good relationship. And that person in turn becomes a responsible keeper because they've gotten good information from someone. Yeah, correct. You know, you know what? We're going to pick this up again in the next episode. And just to give us a little teaser, um, Alex, just tell us about some of your credentials because in the next episode, we're going to get into conservation and some of your educational background. So if you could just give us, a, you know, just a quick quick rundown of your credentials and, you know, where you went, started to go academically. Um, so basically, I, you know, I went through high school and uh, got my uh, BS in biology from Queen's University of Charlotte and then went to grad school, got my master of science in ecology, evolution, and organismal biology from Eastern Michigan. And then I came back down to teach for Queens um, for about three years. Um, and I've taught several courses, including metacognition, biology, uh, genetics. I've taught the, the biggest course, though, that I want to highlight is urban ecology. That's what I was hired on for. Um, and that was exactly what I wanted to do. So fate kind of worked out that way. So I had been teaching that for about three years before I took this on full time. Interesting. All right. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to stop here for tonight and we're going to pick it up next time. All right. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again for the next episode.